Dean Still, distinguished faculty, staff, students, friends of Truett, it is a great joy and honor to be with you this day, the beginning of a spring semester. I hope and trust and pray that it will be a time of learning and growth and transformation as we all seek to serve the Lord and prepare ourselves afresh for the various forms of ministry to which Christ calls us. Let us pray. Gracious God, descend your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here. Speak through me if necessary and always beyond me that your word might be heard by your people this day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Back in the early days of airplane travel, there was a plane that was flying from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. It took even longer back then with propeller planes than it does now, although it's still a very long flight. The plane was flying over the Rocky Mountains somewhere in Colorado when it descended into an extraordinarily heavy fog. It had been in that fog for some time when finally the pilot came over the loudspeaker. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have bad news and good news. First, the bad news. We're lost. The good news is we're two hours ahead of schedule. (laughs) It's not a bad description for where we find ourselves these days in a variety of dynamics. In higher education and theological education, in many ways it feels like we're lost. We've lost sight of our end, of our purpose, of our goal, of where we're heading, but we're doing it faster and changing things more quickly than ever before. We don't know why we're doing what we're doing, but we keep trying to do it quicker. It used to be called keeping up with the Joneses, but I'm a Jones and even I can't keep up. (laughs) We put instant coffee into a microwave or an impatient at how long it takes. Everything is moving. Social media and everything else happens so quickly that time has gotten compressed. What takes a Master of Divinity degree three years or college four years feels like a blur, except when midterms and finals are impending. But everything is changing, and yet we don't know quite why or in what direction we're moving. Like those ancient Israelites in the book of Numbers, we've lost our way and sometimes we even want to go back to Egypt. My father, who was a pastor and a seminary educator throughout his life, said that every church he'd ever been a part of had a back to Egypt committee in it. (laughs) We get lost, we don't know where we're headed. And so then we just want to go back to Egypt because Egypt is safe and Egypt is familiar, even if it was suffering, even if it was slavery, even if it was oppression, we know it. We're lost, and yet we're changing and moving at a faster pace than ever before. But why is it that higher education and theological education seem so fraught? We've lost a sense of our purpose, of our end, our telos, And also because we too often act with an impoverished sense of what it means to be human. Too many times in the contemporary academy, whether in a college or a university or in a seminary, we act as if we're heads contingently connected to bodies. 
as if all that's about is how we think, forgetting that we are embodied beings with thoughts and desires and emotions and discipleship and action out in the world. And sometimes we bring that even to our interpretation of Scripture. Paul's letter to the Philippians, a little earlier than the passage that was read just a few moments ago. In chapter 2, verse 5, there's a verse that's so familiar to all of us. It's the verse that leads into the famous Christ hymn. And in most English translations, the word is used, let this mind be among you that was in Christ Jesus. It seems like a perfect verse for an academic setting, for people who are smart and who are used to study and used to cognitive understanding. But too often it plays into that sense of being lost in the academy. And we think that all that matters is what goes on above the neck in my thinking. The Greek word there in Philippians 2.5 is the Greek word phronane. Which for most Greeks, including in the ancient world and particularly for ancient philosophy, would not have been translated as mind and leading to that kind of connotation. Rather, it's translated better as practical wisdom. It's about a kind of formation of a whole way of life, which led Stephen Fowle in his commentary on Philippians in the Brazos commentary series to suggest that a better translation of that verse would be something like this. Let this pattern of thinking and feeling and perceiving and living be among you that was in Christ Jesus. Because a formation for wisdom is about the shaping of the mind. The Jewish novelist Chaim Potok in his novel In the Garden has the narrator say, a shallow mind is a sin against God. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So thinking deeply, that doesn't mean that just because you have a PhD or a master of divinity that you're a deeper thinker than others. Some of the deepest thinkers I know are simple farmers in tune with the land and with God and Christ. But thinking deeply, have this pattern of thinking, and then Fowl goes on, and feeling It's about shaping our desires, our emotions, having them rightly ordered toward God. Augustine in his confessions when he talks about the brokenness and the fragmentation which is a result of sin. Talks about the disordered desires which lead us astray. The writers Chip and Dan Heath use the metaphor of the elephant and the rider to remind us of just how powerful the emotions are. The emotions are like the elephant. Reason is like the rider. It can steer those emotions, but when the emotions get out of control, I don't know if you've ever been around an elephant that gets out of control. We had one chase us once on a safari in Africa. It scared the daylights out of me. I was glad we were in a Jeep and our guide had a gun. They go rampaging across. Pixar captured it eloquently in the movie this summer, Inside Out, of the power of the emotions. What Paul's pointing to is that we need a pattern of desire and emotion that is ordered toward God. This pattern of thinking and feeling, perceiving, how we see the world. Do we see it as a place of God's abundance or do we act out of those habits of sin I want to go back to Egypt, thinking in a logic of scarcity and win-lose. 
and fear and anxiety. And living. Have this pattern of thinking and feeling and perceiving and living that was in Christ Jesus. Our discipleship ought to be shaping the way we think and feel and perceive as much as our thinking and feeling and perceiving shape our actions, our life. It's about the cultivation of habits and patterns ordered toward God. And so in that, when Paul talks in chapter 4, verse 4 following, he's actually embodying that same wisdom. Have this pattern of thinking and feeling and perceiving and living be among you that was in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Paul says. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not worry about anything. But in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a time filled with fear and anxiety. All you have to say is ISIS, polarization, racism, fragmentation, lostness. And we're inclined to get anxious and fearful. Paul's talking about an ordering of all that we are in a way that will keep us focused on Christ. We can't just say don't fear at all. It's a natural human response. But the psalmist would say fear the Lord. Replace the kind of fear and anxiety that distracts and fragments and breaks apart with fear of the Lord. That's the beginning Of what? Wisdom. Then Paul says in verse 8, Beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, think on these things. There's going to be a lot of reading, a lot of work this semester, because it actually takes discernment To be able to distinguish what is the Holy Spirits from all the spirits of the age and the other kinds of spirits that distort us. We toss around words sometimes like justice and truth and honor as if they're self-interpreting. And often we sound more like Americans than Amos and Hosea and Jesus and Paul. It's hard work to discern, to think about these things, to pursue excellence and what's worthy of praise, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And then Paul says, whatever you've seen and heard in me, do these things. If I were editing Paul, I would have said, you know, you probably want to aim your sights a little lower. Just tell them to focus somewhere else. Because, you know, when you put the spotlight on you, creates kind of an expectation. And yet isn't that what Christian life is about? Isn't that what the formation of a seminary ought to be about? Helping us stay focused on Christ in our thoughts and feelings and desires and perceptions and actions precisely because the world is watching. Are we embodying the light of Christ in all that we are and all that we do? What Paul is talking about is the kind of formation that occurs here at Truett Seminary. Truett Seminary is one of the lights 
that stands in the darkness of contemporary theological education. Because you have a faculty and a staff and a community that is still focused on wisdom. But it's not only on wisdom. It's also to remain focused on the end. The problem of the Israelites in numbers was their wanting to go back to Egypt. They'd lost sight of the promised land, of the reign of God. Shortly after I'd become dean of Duke Divinity School, when Susan and I went back there, our children were relatively young. Our oldest son was 10, our middle son was 7, and our daughter was 2. Our oldest son was in elementary school, and you know he was at that age where you talk among yourselves at school, and you try to explain what weird things your parents do. And our oldest son was kind of confused, because when I was just a faculty member in Baltimore, and Susan was a pastor, he knew what that meant. He was trying to figure out what a dean did. So I told him that it was like being a principal of his elementary school. That made sense to him. And then one day we were coming home from soccer practice, and he said, so I get that you're kind of like a principal. Can you tell me what a divinity school is? I thought for a second, and I said, well, and I started to name various friends of ours who were pastors. I said, you know, Stephen, Susan, and Jill, and John, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, that's where they went to school to learn how to preach and how to teach and how to lead a church and how to run the church. And he said, oh, okay, huh. I thought, boy, that was great. <laughs> it was an awkward silence. And then he said, I would have thought you'd all have been talking about God. Oh. Well, there's that. How easy it is for all of us, whether here in the seminary or whether out in congregations, to engage in the activities of the church and lose sight of the fact that it's about God. That it's about bearing witness to the God of Jesus Christ. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon wrote about being the fact that the contemporary church is too often filled with practical atheists. How often all of us can fall prey to that. Dorothy Day said she wanted to live her life in a way that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. I confess my life makes too much sense on too many days, even if God doesn't exist. But I pray that the classes and the chapel services and the field education and all the life and work that happens here at Truett is structured to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. To keep those patterns and those habits focused in a way that will be conducive to wisdom. There's a heroine I have. She's a woman who lives in rural Burundi. If you want to go see Maggie, you leave Bujumboro, you get on paved roads, and then you go off the paved roads to dirt roads, and then you get off the dirt roads into places where you don't think cars ought to be going at all. You get to a little village called Riigi, and then you turn right, and finally you'll come to where Maggie lives. Burundi is one of the poorest countries in the world, and Riigi is one of the poorest regions of one of the poorest countries in the world. And there, once you get there, it's like Brigadoon, a whole world crops up. Maggie is a Christian who was made to watch something horrible. She was tied up to a chair. 
made to watch during the Civil War as militia came and killed 70 members of her family and friends. Her best friend's head was handed to her after it had been beheaded. They taunted her, but miraculously they let her live. And after she was untied, she went and she found in the sacristy of the church seven children her mother had adopted. Maggie's never had any children of her own. She's never married. But she saw those children and she said, we're going to rebuild this village. She calls it Maison Shalom, the house of peace. Over the field of where the massacre took place, she built a swimming pool. She said she wanted the children to swim in the pool and have their vision cleansed like the waters of baptism. She began opportunities for education and housing and microfinance. She had a garage to teach the boys how to fix cars and a beauty shop for the girls to learn all of that. All of these things she started to develop over the last 15 years. More than 10,000 children have been educated and formed out of Maggie's vision of new life in the wake of tragedy. Maggie's an amazing person. She said she probably would have committed suicide if she wasn't a Christian. But her eyes focused on God. She's been patterning her life, her thinking, her feeling, her perceiving, her living She has that joy that Philippians is talking about in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. There's no anxiety in Maggie. She has the peace of God. And yet she's always thinking and discerning. And like Paul, she sees her life in the light of Christ. And boy, you can see Christ shine through her life. She came to North Carolina a little over a year ago. Duke gave her an honorary degree, and I was privileged to be her faculty sponsor. Well, I was privileged and burdened, because you know when you're around a holy person, it's really a pain. (laughs) Because, you know, it's so transparent how she, I just felt like a miserable wretch. She arrived at the airport, and I said, Maggie, it's so good to see you. What's new? And she said, well, we're starting Maison Shalom in eastern Congo. I said, why? She said, there are children who need love. I said, well, there's that. And I started to say, but really why? And then I realized I was just going to dig my hole deeper and deeper. Because she's focused on God and what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit and making all things new. She talked to me about how she continues to learn and grow and pray. Finally, I said, you know, Maggie, I know you pray every afternoon. She goes into a private chapel and just prays for an hour. And I said, Maggie, what do you do during that? What do, you, what do you say to God? She said, well, I mostly listen to God. I thought, well, there's part of my problem. When I go to pray, I got a long list. I do most of the talking. Maggie does mostly listening. She could tell I was disappointed to find out that I wanted some kind of prayer. And she was just talking about listening to God. And so I said, Anything? And she said, well, you know, every morning I do pray one prayer as I get started with the day. I said, oh, how does that go? She said, I don't know how it will sound in English. I said, could you give it a try? I said, you know, your English is probably better than my Kirundi, her native language, or French, her second language. And 
she paused and then she said, well, in English it would go something like this. Lord, let your miracles break forth every day and let me not be an obstacle in any way. I said, Maggie, that's pretty good in English. I think that's at the heart of what Paul's trying to get at here in Philippians, even while he's writing from prison to people he longs to be with, is a conviction that the Lord does continue to break forth miracles every day. Part of the problem of theological education in the American context and in too many congregations is we are practical atheists who are, would be surprised to see God breaking forth miracles every day. Because we don't know where to look. We don't know how to see. And then she says, and let me not be an obstacle in any way. The formation you're receiving here at Truett, the reason why that kind of formation and a residential community is so important in preparing to be a pastor is to unlearn those habits of sin and to learn the patterns of holiness that will allow the light of Christ to shine forth when you step into the pulpit and when you're out on the street and when you're engaging in people in meetings and communities. And i got to tell you, of all the people I've met in my life, if I think about people who are an obstacle to God's purposes, Maggie's at the very bottom of the list. And part of the reason is because she prays that prayer every day. I hope that your education at Truett, that the teaching and learning that the faculty do, that the ways in which the staff are engaged with you in formation, that as you're out in the practice of ministry and preaching and teaching and continuing to grow, that you would both believe that God's miracles are breaking forth every day. And that you would continually be praying that you would not be an obstacle in any way. We need that kind of formation so that we can do the kind of transformational witness that Maggie embodies in Maison Shalom. You see, when the church has been at its most vibrant and vital, we have this formation for wisdom focused on God on the one hand and transformational social innovation and witness on the other. Baylor University was founded more than a century and a half ago by Christians with a bold vision of the kind of education that could transform people in communities near and far. Truett Seminary was founded more than two decades ago with that same vision and boldness. And yet in a book that came out this past fall, on social innovation and social entrepreneurship. They distinguish between social advocacy and social service and social entrepreneurship, and they note that churches and faith communities tend to be pretty good at the advocacy and the service part and don't have much to do with innovation and entrepreneurship. And yet that's the gospel that people often see shining forth these bold ventures that emerge out of a deep, well-formed Christian conviction and a transformational understanding of what it means to bear witness to that in the world. We need that kind of boldness connected to that kind of formation. 
That's what happens here at Truett Seminary. And I pray and hope that it will happen in intentional and explicit ways this semester and on throughout all of your ministries. When Maggie's asked how it is that she does all these things, Maison Shalom now has 650 employees, more than 450 of whom are alumni of her own program. When she's asked how she manages to do all that, she has a nice, succinct little phrase. Love made me an inventor. When she says that, she's not talking about Valentine's Day love. She's talking about the love from the beginning of Genesis to the vision of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation. And being formed and steeped in that story, continuing to see her life patterned in thinking and feeling and perceiving and living in Christ Jesus. She's become an inventor, embodying incredible witness to the Lord's miracles. In such a way that that weekend that she received an honorary degree, by God's providence... It also so happened that Melinda Gates was giving the commencement address. And Melinda Gates came over and said, Can I come and visit you? What you're doing seems profoundly important. A witness to the gospel. Love made me an inventor. Friends, the challenge of your education and formation at Truett Seminary is not just about finding people to fill pulpits. It's not about the maintenance of the church as it is, much less a longing for the good old days, which my maternal grandfather, a Methodist preacher in Iowa, said, there's nothing that accounts for a longing for the good old days quite so much as a bad memory. Rather, we need to be focused on the end, who is God. We need to be cultivating the kind of wisdom that will lead us to that faithful and transformational witness. Let love make us an inventor. Fred Craddock, the preacher and preaching professor for many years, tells a story about one time when he was preaching in a congregation. After he preached this sermon, a woman who was a long-time member of the church, that kind of old stalwart member of the church, came up and she said to Fred, she said, I'm through. And he said, what do you mean? She said, I'm giving up. He said, why? She said, well, I hear what you say, but it's all talk, and talk is cheap. It just doesn't seem to matter much anymore. I heard you talk about God, and I heard you talk about Jesus. I heard you talk about the church, but I don't see it. Most of what I see is people who are stuck, and people who just want the church to stay the same, and they don't want much to happen, and they don't want anything. There's nothing happening that would bear witness to what you said. It's all talk and it's irrelevant, and I'm giving up. Fred said, no, 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 you need, to, you need to understand. There are places where the gospel is alive. There are seminaries that are forming people for transformational witness. There are preachers and, and congregations that are doing amazing things, bearing witness to the transformational love and power of God. And she looked at him and she said, I want names. May we give her your name?